Welcome to the Nature Photo Guys podcast, where we talk about nature photography from gear to our philosophies and everything in between. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back and relax. You're listening to Joe Dujardin and Chris Gibbs, the Nature Photo Guys. Hey guys, welcome back to the Nature of Photo Guys podcast. We are excited to be joined by a longtime conservationist who uses his photography to promote the preservation of the natural environment. He developed a profound appreciation for wildlife and their habitats in his youth, and his devotion to conservation has led him to photograph as a means to inform people on issues affecting the planet and motivate them to contribute to the solutions. Most recently, he has joined as a founding member of the Canadian Conservation Photographers Collective, a team of photographers and videographers working together to educate, engage, and inspire meaningful action on conservation issues. Please welcome to the show, Josh Deline here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. Oh, we're, well, welcome, we're stoked to man. have you here, Josh. Absolutely. You know, uh, taking a look at your website, your bio, um, your, your passion project, um, just everything that you're doing. Uh, we're really excited to get you on here. So it's going to be a good one, guys. So stay tuned. Thank you. No problem. So yeah, let's get started. Um, Josh, um, you know, standard questions. Uh, it's not going to be anything rapid fire, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, how you got started, um, you know, your photography journey, um, you know, uh, and then we'll get into uh, the collective. Absolutely. So I've been a photographer for about five and a half years now. Uh, and honestly, the reason I got into it uh, was based on my interest in conservation. Uh, okay. I was looking... I, really, my passion, you know, as you mentioned, my passion for conservation started when I was a teenager, and I, I looked for different ways in which I could possibly make a career out of that. Mm -hmm. Life took me down some different paths, uh, but mm -hmm. that that interest has always been with me, you know, all the way along. Uh, so, a few years ago, I decided I'd, I'd pick up a camera and uh, and try using that as as a way to uh, connect people with conservation issues. So, uh, in that time, uh, you know, I've been developing my skills. That's, of course, an ongoing experience, and I'll keep uh, working on that. But um, I've had an opportunity to connect with a number of different people uh, with similar interest in conservation. And uh, in 2019, you know, I threw out the idea of putting something together. Um, didn't got some responses, didn't really follow up with it at the time. And then in 2020, around the time of the uh, pandemic, um, I, I did the exact same thing, threw it out on uh, Instagram, got some responses. And then I, uh, I connected with a fellow uh, by the name of Justin Taus, and uh, we got the conversation going about, you know, what, what this would look like, uh, you know, what a conservation collective would look like and, um, and how we would recruit people to it. And so we've spent, um, you know, we spent quite a bit, bit of time working on that and you know as you mentioned we can we can dive further into that but uh, that's certainly kind of you know the the genesis story of of how this all came to be have you always had an interest in photography or are you just kind of like you said in the last five six years you've kind of just picked that up or did you did you do a little bit of it before or just kind of <laughs> nothing seriously i always okay. appreciated uh photography to be honest the i think what inspired me was um back uh, quite a few years ago now I was living in Prince George in, in the central interior of uh, BC, mm -hmm. and I was part of a conservation group that was opposed to the Enbridge Northern Gateway Project. Uh, so I spent, I think it was about four and a half years working on that. 
And uh, during that time, we hosted an exhibition by the International League of Conservation Photographers. Uh, hmm. So what they had done was something called the Raz Rapid Assessment Visual Expedition. So they sent a number of photographers out to the Douglas Channel to capture images uh, of the area and, and essentially try to show people what was at risk if that project were to proceed. Um, we, as I say, we hosted that exhibition, the group that I uh, helped to form there. And uh, it, it was just absolutely inspiring. It, it really was breathtaking, you know, the content that they captured. And I thought, ah, you know, I would love to to be part of something like that. You know, obviously my skills are nowhere near their level, but nevertheless, I thought we could do something on a national level. We could pull together people uh, who are already engaged in this uh, field and uh, and collaborate. So, yeah, that's that's really how that all came to be. Well, I'm telling you, Josh, looking at your website, um, five years. Yeah, I was thinking the I same mean, thing. Uh, there's Amazing. no way. I would have I thought 15, 20 years. So very impressed with your photography. <laughs> oh, thank you so Absolutely. much. And that last elk shot on your um, on your Instagram, that's wild. I mean, that really tells a story. That that was uh, that was pretty crazy to see that. And, and those are the type of images I love to find, too. You know, um, especially, I mean... I understand where um, uh, I understand what the, the collective is trying to do, but you know, mm -hmm. Chris and I tend to promote a little bit of that kind of thing too. Where you know, a lot of times, like you wouldn't believe, almost every trip, I've got like a grizzly bear with a, with a pop can, or I got a grizzly bear playing with wire, or a bear eating mm -hmm. styrofoam, or a mm -hmm. like it's ridiculous the amount of like garbage and. and um, you know, things that put animals in harm's, harm's way, you know, uh, out there and stuff. And, and I mean, it's not, um, how do I say this? Um, I know your efforts are more on, on a grand scale, but we see it every day and people can certainly help by just, you know, doing the simplest of things like taking, taking your garbage, garbage out yeah. <laughs> or, or yeah. taking more out, you know, or, or bringing mm -hmm. out more than what you took in and that sort of stuff. But that that elk image, um, yeah, that that one really spoke to me. So awesome job! Yeah, thank you. That was yeah, that was just sort of a, a chance occurrence. Uh, I was in mm -hmm. an area trying to photograph elk, and uh, someone drove down the road, saw me with my camera, and said, "Hey, there's there's an elk around the corner with a hammock wrapped around its antlers." Wow! So I thought I thought I, I've got to go see this. Uh, yeah, popped around the corner, and at that moment, this elk was walking up the driveway. Uh, and stopped in the middle of the driveway. So there, you know, there's nothing wow. on either side. And I was, yeah. Wow. And, and you know what? Um, I found that quite a bit over the years too. If somebody sees you with a long lens or some sort of professional camera equipment, they love mm. to tell you where they've seen something. Yeah. And <laughs> it, and obviously it got you that, that awesome image, right? You know, I've had people tell me where birds nests are or their, or where this den was or, you know, things that you, you don't really want to, you know, um, yellow to the world. Like, oh, here, here's a, a nesting, no, uh, sure. yeah. you know, whatever bird. But, yeah, they've come, they're really excited to share with you and and just tell you what they've seen. So, I mean, that's that's great how that turned out. I mean, or else you, know, you may never have seen the elk, right? You know, so. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> no, that's awesome. Um, so. Okay, so you kind of got started five, six years ago in photography, always had a passion for conservation. Um, you know, can you tell us maybe a little bit more about this collective now? Um, you know, just kind of delve into a little more. I mean, I was I was uh, on the website um, 
you know, reading the mission, the about, um, yeah, the abouts page, the mission page. I think there's the two separate pages. It might have been your about page on your website, but yeah, if you can expand on that a little, uh, Josh. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I'll pick up the story where I where I left off there. Sure. So, so J- Justin and I, um, you know, as I said, we worked to try and gather together a group of people. Uh, mm-hmm. We started with five and then we said, okay, well, we're going to need to expand that. So amongst ourselves, we reached out to as many people, uh, again, that we knew that were, had um, some involvement in conservation work in, in the past. Mm-hmm. We ended up with 19 photographers. Uh, so we worked through 2021 to prepare the website, get, you know, get things sort of ready to go. We officially launched in October, 2021, okay. and then very quickly realized that, um, the photographers weren't overly interested in managing the you know the business side of the uh, collective. Mm-hmm. So by December, we started recruiting volunteers, and now I think we're up to eleven or twelve volunteers that helped. Oh, excellent! Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah, they're they're the you know the workhorse uh, of this machine. They they really you know, drive things forward and and help to create. Um, you know, all the content and and whatnot. So, you know, the photographers are are out in the field doing what they love to do. And then our volunteers bring their, you know, all their different skill sets, whether it's um, social media, video editing, uh, graphic design, those sorts of things. You know, we've got a a solid team of of people um, with some incredible skills. So, uh, you know, we worked... Through 2022, uh, we were working on workshops. Uh, we've hosted a couple, three different workshops, uh, online webinars, and um, we've, we've kind of dabbled in, in a couple different things. Uh, we put together basically a services package uh, to say that we would, uh, you know, we would approach organizations that are engaged in conservation. So that might be environmental, non-governmental organizations. It might be First Nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be government agencies. Could be uh, university research departments. And we, we would approach these organizations and say, look, you know, if you're engaged in a conservation project and you need photographers to be on site to capture the content that you can then use to help promote your work, uh, you know, we would be available. So we wow. put that together. Um, and then we, in the last year, we've built an online catalog of images uh, using Photo Shelter. Uh, so the same organizations, we approached them and said, okay, now we've got a bank of images that you can license uh, you know, for a set period of time that you can use on your website, your social media feed, those sorts of things. Um, mm-hmm. So we've been working on that. And then we made the decision that um, it was time to engage in a campaign. Uh, Perfect. And that, okay. and that brings us to, to Crossing Paths. direct animal vehicle collisions, countless animals die on Canadian roads every year. These structures are, you know, let's say a hundred feet wide and, you know, right, they're, they're impacting wildlife over millions of acres of habitat. The marine mammals are living in a world of sound. The ocean is a sound trap. 
and we are injecting this noise in there. Roads are one of the biggest barriers to wildlife movement and finding mates and food. Road mortality is the number one cause of death for badgers in BC. Perfect segue right into uh, uh, the project or the campaign that's coming up. Yeah. So <laughs> we've been working on that since June. We officially launched in June. Um, at the time, we didn't actually uh, have a campaign manager yet. Uh, so the assistant manager and I you know, did a lot of, sort of the planning and organizing for the campaign. Uh, we okay. now have a campaign manager who's done a phenomenal job and helping to build out, you know, very detailed plans on, on uh, what would need to be presented, basically looking at the end products, how we would measure the success of, mm-hmm. of this campaign, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So the photographers uh, started shooting in, at the beginning of June and they were given to the end of September to put together images. And of course, you know, many of them had images in their existing banks uh, that they were able to contribute, uh, mm-hmm. but, but many went out and, and shot specifically for the campaign as well. So we've got close to 600 images uh, from our photographers, uh, images and videos uh, that we're able to draw from uh, and, and use in our uh, materials. We've been working on a publication document that is now, I think, around 60 pages and it's it's close to being finished, but there's probably a few more pages that'll be added to that. Mostly images, but um, we've done a lot of research in addition to to help sort of understand the subjects and then share that information. Uh, we've partnered with three different environmental non-governmental organizations. Uh, so that's Living Lakes Canada, the Wildlife Collision Prevention Program, and the Marine Education and Research Society. So the idea with the campaign itself is that, and I guess I probably should have started with this, is that we're focusing on the impacts of transportation on wildlife in Canada. Uh, so we, we've picked five different theme, themes, uh, roads and highways, lakes and rivers, ocean, railway, and aviation. Uh, mm-hmm. So we've tried to capture content related to each of those different uh, topics and show how uh, you know wildlife are impacted. Roads and highways, by far, we got the most content. Uh, mm-hmm. Simply given For that sure. you know, um, you know, photographers are driving around and whatnot, and they see these kinds of uh, events as as they're going, which ends up being a good thing because roads and highways are also they also have the biggest impact of all of those different subjects on uh, on. Oh, wildlife. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, totally get that. We see that all the time. Um, and we hear about it all the time. And you see it in the news all the time. Um, you hear a lot about um, uh, the railway and the impact it has on wildlife and bears, especially bears, because it, it, it seems to to make the news, you know, that they've, you know, they come to the tracks and, you know, they've gotten killed or hit because of, you know, grain spills or well, whatever it is, right? So, exactly. um, yeah, you, you certainly hear about uh, that quite a bit. But as far as the water goes, uh, that's that's interesting, lakes and rivers and, and the impact there. Um, like, can you explain a little bit more about that? Like, what um, what do you exactly mean as far as, like you said, transportation, roadways is kind of easy to get your head wrapped around it. Mm-hmm. But what do you mean by the water portion of it? 
couple different things uh, right off the top. So I, you know, I didn't write the section, so I'm kind of going mm -hmm. off of, um, you know, sure. I've been watching some of the interviews that we've conducted, uh, mm -hmm. but essentially invasive species. Uh, so yep. any, anytime, you know, as in, like millweed and, and zebra mussels and things like that mm -hmm. get carried into a lake, uh, those can impact the, the wildlife. Certainly For um, sure. what, what was surprising to learn about actually was the impact of wake boats. Uh, so wake boats have quite uh, an extraordinary amount of, of impact. So I believe the um, they can impact uh, underneath the boats from six to eight meters. And uh, I think in order for them not to have an impact on the shore, they need to be at least 300 meters from a shoreline. Uh, wow. So that causes oh. everything from from um, you know shoreline erosion disturbance to uh, nesting areas things like that so wake boats surprisingly you know the average boat can have an impact but a wake boat has i, I think the most uh, impact of any boats on, on the that's crazy areas. just because the force no that it's trying to create the wake behind there i guess yeah exactly I didn't think about yeah. that at all hmm? yeah think about the disturbance yeah. it's all about the disturbance that boat's yeah. causing underwater exactly Wow. When you see a lot yeah, of these, a lot of these wake boats, they're definitely not 300 meters away from the shoreline in most cases at, at all, all, right? So no, in fact, they're, they're, they're close. coming yeah. close to the shoreline so their family members can see them, you know, that kind of thing, right? So Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, can, it kind of goes, you know, it's counterintuitive to what people, you know, they want to be close, but the reality is by being close, they're having more of an impact. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So have you got any, like, okay, when, when you're, when this campaign launches, um, this kind of information's out there. Like, are you hoping to get some sort of um, something in place to prevent that on certain lakes? Um, I mean, I, I could see get this being a real challenge sure. trying to, yeah. you can certainly get the message out, but I, I would think it would, you know, people with wake boats. Um, I don't know. How do you get the message to them? Like, are you looking for some sort of a mandate or some sort of a restriction on certain lakes? Or uh, I guess that's a start, mm -hmm. um, especially for areas that are maybe threatened or, um, you know, have some sort of a, um, how do you say that? Um, where it can cause uh, quite uh, an impact um, on the environment. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm saying it right, but you know what I mean? It really, our approach is twofold. So as an organization, our primary mandate is education. Uh, mm -hmm. So we try to provide information to help, you know, people to make better choices, uh, be aware of issues, make better choices. Uh, but the other aspect of this is we want to uh, people to become engaged in these subjects. So by partnering with these different organizations, who really are the experts in these fields, um, mm -hmm. that allows us to connect our audience with people who are doing work uh, mm -hmm. so that they can support them. They can learn more from these organizations. Exactly. They may want to volunteer. They may choose to apply, mm -hmm. you know, to work in, in you know, get a career in, in those, uh, with those different organizations, or they might uh, make financial donations that had to help support the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's, you know, there's a few different ways that they can actively engage and, and support them. Um, so we want to, you know, really become sort of a conduit to them. Uh, you know, we see we're we're providing the visual evidence, and then we want people to, you know, become involved uh, to the best of their, or you know, to their level of interest or best of their ability. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so this this booklet, this information that you're putting together, is this something that um, is there going to be a cost, or is it going to be available on on the website? Is it a like a, a PDF, is it like an a free download? Kind of thing? Yeah. Is it 
Yeah, so it'll be available uh, for download off of our website, no cost. Um, we'll send it to organizations that we think may have an interest. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, we'll, we'll likely end up sending out to media organizations uh, to try and draw interest into the campaign, into the topics that we're, we're covering. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that information will be widely available. Oh, great. Okay, that's perfect. Well, we'll definitely link that in our uh, on our podcast as well here for everybody too. Thank you so much. And that's going to be available uh, first of November, um, Josh. Or? Yeah, exactly. So the the campaign runs for the month of November. Uh, it starts on November first. Uh, as we go through the month, we'll introduce the different themes. So you know, we'll start out sort of giving an overall overarching uh, idea of what uh, the campaign's about, and then we'll walk through, say, roads and highways, you know, lakes and rivers, all the different topics throughout the month, giving each one uh, you know time to expand on it. Uh, sure. It will mostly be done through our social media accounts, uh, so mm-hmm. Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are our primary accounts right now. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that inform. Well, we're going to be releasing blogs in the uh, during the month of November. Uh, we'll have a newsletter that goes out. Um, mm-hmm. There will be videos. So we have a you know as you saw the the teaser video that so, so basically starting October fifteenth we're going to start teasing the campaign, um, letting people nice. know what's something's coming. Uh, but there will be there will be. Um, we're going to have a primary video, which is going to look more like a bit of a mini documentary. I, I think 10, 15 minutes or so. Uh, so part of what we've been doing is interviewing experts on these different subjects. Uh, we've, we've spoken with, you know, experts from our partnering organizations, uh, but mm-hmm. we also have a research, research assistant who co-authored a paper on wildlife overpasses and underpasses uh, and knows several experts in that particular field reached out, conducted some great interviews so there's a lot of really good information that we're going to be able to provide you know both visually uh and you know through video and things like that as well excellent well, and speaking of overpasses Perfect. we have one just being built here we're uh west of us just yeah, past no. the, oh, the valley yeah. yeah so um right at the the turnoff to the uh the 1a to cb on highway one heading west just past there yeah they're they're they've been at it for oh god i don't know how many months now but yeah they're creating yeah. a uh, an overpass, yep, just like the the few of the the other ones, almost identical to the ones they have in Banff National Park. So Wonderful. it was really great to see. Yep, it's, it's been a long process, but it's I mean uh, the um, the statistics are there. You know, the animals yep. use it. Um, you know, it, it saves wildlife. Um, I love watching some of that, that that trail cam footage that they have because they have they seem to have them at all the underpasses and occasionally you'll see them posted somewhere whether it's on social media or on their website or something uh, showing usually like black and white video footage of them crossing at night or what's come over the overpass you know and that sort of stuff so I mean uh, the the um, uh, how do you say that. Um, the evidence uh, is evident, you know, that uh, it, they're certainly being used. So it was really great to see that that one being built uh, as we speak. So yeah, it's good they put out footage like that because a lot of people do real do are curious if they're actually being used, right? And you know, mm-hmm. just a lot of money spent for nothing, and no, actually they are being used, right? So, well, but, absolutely. I mean, you're probably never going to see a moose crossing the overpass right. in the day, right? But you know, a lot of this stuff happens at night, and mm-hmm. you know, a time of the day where um, you're never going to see it. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah. but that that that's what was really cool about it. So, yeah. 
pretty stoked that the, they're actually doing that. So is there many of those out there west, um, Josh, like uh, in the area you're at? or have you? Seen I'll be honest, or? I haven't seen any in BC. Um, okay. I believe there are some. Mm-hmm. I want to say maybe in the southeast uh, corner of the province, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I haven't encountered. You know, most of my experience uh, really, you know, as I mentioned, is it, is the central interior and, and sort of um, northwest BC. You know, sure, that's yeah. where I've spent most of my life. I've been on Vancouver Island now for about nine years, but uh, yeah. And certainly that's not something uh, that I've ever seen up there. Although um, in a past career, I was actually a paramedic in, in a small northern community called uh, Burns Lake. And uh, in the course of that career, I absolutely saw you know, wildlife collisions with moose, um, nearly had some myself. You know, and I can speak to the uh, the cost to people. Uh, you know, the the damage that it does, the harm that it does to people, as well as as moose. Um, you know, I was treating a patient one time, and there was a moose nearby on the road. And as I was treating the patient who had struck a moose, um, you know, the RSMP came along and and dispatched. Uh, you know, unfortunately, shot the moose, and it, it startled yeah. me because I was in the middle of you know leaning over trying to help sure. uh, assist this person. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it firsthand too, oh. um, in Jasper National Park, and um, I mean, not not to sound um, grotesque or um, or over the top here, but I, I probably missed the collision by about fifteen or twenty minutes, and the moose—it was a bull moose, right side of the road. The transport truck it hit, the grill was pushed in, and. The you could still kind of you could smell the fur and everything still burning mm-hmm. like it was that hot like the collision happened that that soon and destroyed the moose and I wouldn't say totaled the truck but I mean the amount of damage it did to a transport truck was pretty mm-hmm. amazing like for that size of animal you know the moose may have been only it was a smaller bull it could have been six seven eight hundred pounds but I mean wow like that the damage it did. Absolutely. Um, so we, I've seen that that for, and I mean, being out in the field, and, and Chris and yourself, Josh, can attest to this. Like, I don't know how many times I've driven by whitetails, muleys, um, you oh, know, the odd sure. bear, yeah. moose, elk, like all the time, side of the road, you know, middle of the road, coyotes. How many coyotes have you seen mm-hmm. that have been killed on the road? You know. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I'm really not sure I'm going with this, but I can certainly uh, relate to to what you're saying uh, as far as um, you know your your moose experience. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've never hit anything myself being out there as, as much as I am, especially driving at night. You know, I've uh, been been very um, fortunate that way. But uh, yeah, you certainly see it all around us. Well, even, even to, you know, express the awareness to, to everybody that, you know, there's a reason the speed limits are a little slower in, in certain areas, just like slow down, right? They're there for mm-hmm. a reason. And I, I can tell you the amount that we've, we're driving around, a lot of people do not recognize, like even the national parks, I mean, it's 90 for a reason and, yeah. and some of the roads are slower, um, you know, just slow down because there's well, right around the corner, there's somebody, there's a, you know, a deer right in the middle of the road or whatever, right? So... Well, even, you know, uh, the wildlife fences, okay? Last yeah. spring, <clears throat> this was between um, uh, Banff and Lake Louise. On the highway, it's fenced. Black bear right in the middle of the, the two, like the, the um, uh, 
the separation, like the, the split highway in the middle. Sure. Dandelions, eating dandelions. That's a black bear yeah. that's gotten over the fence. So people are thinking it's um, a, a huge, um, uh, how do you, I don't know how to say this, but uh, they think that they're safe from wildlife because of these wildlife fences. Well, so not even aware. close. Yeah. Not yep. even close. A friend of mine got a um, a um, a video of um, I don't know, Josh, if you heard of uh, Nakoda. She's the um, the white grizzly bear here. Okay. Um, she's yeah. she's the famed white grizzly bear in the Lake Louise area, and he got a video of her, and she's <clears throat> known to come over the fence and eat along the highway, and you know go so. She eventually got relocated. She was radio collared and got relocated because her sister, which was also um, a white grizzly, different, you know, uh, darker face and stuff, she got hit and killed on the highway mm-hmm. there. So they relocated her um, quite a ways into Banff. She found her way back, but she's uh, radio collared. And he got video of her up and over that fence in about mm-hmm. three seconds flat. Wow. And she used the post. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just the the wire. She just well, there's a wooden post along the fence. She's just up and over. Uh, and the video was amazing, like how how fast and how easy it was for this bear to get over. So yeah, I'm I'm sure the fences absolutely do help for the majority of, of you know uh, the wildlife situations. But I don't know. I've seen YouTube videos of a you know a moose clearing that standing still. Yeah, you know, the the agility of these animals, you'd be so surprised. And they really, you know, they're intended to target the, you know, the big, um, the megafauna, the big animals. Yep. Uh, but you know, as as we'll we'll share in the campaign, there's so many different other species uh, that are impacted by wild, you know, road collisions. Uh, 14 million estimated 14 million birds are killed a year in North America uh, on, on roads and the highways. Uh, I believe I, I I'll have to check, you know, our, our sources, but uh, I'm pretty sure amphibians were the, the number one animals uh, killed on roads and highways. It's, it's mm-hmm. astonishing, you know, so you, we see the big animals that are killed, but oftentimes the little ones uh, may go unnoticed. They may, they may be struck and, and either, splatted right on the road or knocked off the road and, and we're never even aware of it. I have wow, that's crazy. I had no that's idea about number. the amphibians. Yeah. Yeah. Well in Waterton they do have that gate coming into the park. They have like um a steel guardrail that's actually embedded into the ground all alongside the highway right. the road coming into um, the town site to protect the salamanders. Mm-hmm. And which is I mean, fantastic that, yeah it, it is and uh, you know that's and, and again something like you you would never ever even think about but that i don't know how long that guardrail goes just to keep them off the road so uh, again that must have been um you, you know something that uh, was happening quite a bit for for them to go through that effort and cost to um to prevent that from happening so <laughs> It's, you know, it, this also speaks to the fact like roads and highways, obviously they're identifiable, but um, we don't, you know, as we discussed with lakes and rivers, there's the the impacts that we don't think about, the things that we don't see that we're not necessarily aware of. Uh, you know, so speaking about ocean, there mm-hmm. are countless uh, wildlife collisions uh, that happen with ships. And sometimes when it's mm-hmm. a big animal, like a whale, you'll, you might hear about that in the news, you know, those do tend to get reported. The problem that I discovered in, in speaking and uh, with experts and learning on my own, doing my own research, is that um, there's not a great reporting system in the ocean. There, 
is a system to report, but that information is not widely shared. It's not shared with the public. So getting statistics on that was really, really difficult. Um, but we do know anecdotally, uh, certainly that, you know, mm-hmm. a large, large number of animals are struck and killed uh, for various different reasons. Um, there's also the impact of noise. And I think a lot of people are generally aware of that. Uh, what they might not know is that sound travels five times faster underwater. Um, so animals that use echolocation are really disrupted. Uh, it disrupts their feeding, their mating, their, you know, a lot of different patterns. We see that a lot on the south coast of BC with the southern resident um, orcas, uh, mm-hmm. which are, you know, certainly an endangered population. Um, they're very much impacted. Toothed whales, I guess, use echolocation as opposed to a baleen, like a uh, humpback or a gray Mm -hmm. whale. And those guys, the problem with them is that they can be almost oblivious uh, to an approaching vehicle. So they're not, they're not as aware uh, as say uh, um, a an animal that uses the echolocation. So that's why oftentimes, you know, they're the ones that are struck and and killed by large vessels or, or even smaller vessels. I have a question for you then. Um, so I'm an advanced drone pilot and, uh, you know, obviously it's illegal to fly in national parks and provincial parks and all that kind of stuff, but you see a lot of drones flying around the ocean. Obviously I'm not close to the ocean being in Calgary, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, is there any, any awareness for people who do fly drones, um, around the ocean with the sound and all that, because the same thing in the national parks and provincial parks, they want to keep the drones planes, anything like that, um, you know, away from that for the sound and disturbing the wildlife. Is there anything that I haven't heard about regarding the oceans for that matter? So it's, it's illegal to approach marine mammals uh, with a drone. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I, I certainly uh, have a drone as well. Uh, but yeah, in Canada, you're not allowed to. In terms of the impacts, certainly, you know, animals with echolocation are, are, would likely be more sensitive. Um, that could that could also impact uh, pinnipeds like sea lions, seals, and things like that. That mm, okay. might disturb them. And oftentimes, they spend time out of water. You know, they're on islands mm-hmm. and things like yes, that. Yeah. Um, the question I have, and I'd actually love to to speak with an expert, are the impacts of drones flying around humpbacks or baleen whales? You know, uh, who, you know, as as we did discussed don't uh, aren't necessarily a sound sensitive nevertheless the laws apply to all marine mammals so oh, sure. um you know as it stands now yeah you, you definitely can't approach them okay no well, it's good to know so yeah i'm just not close to that so uh um yeah and mm-hmm. we definitely like in there's so many places we would like to fly uh drones here in the rocky mountains and obviously that's illegal for obviously for obvious reasons but mm-hmm. um but yeah no good to know well even the provincial parks you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're, it's very restrictive in, in Alberta and I would assume all of Canada, but, um, oh, it is. Yes. Uh, yep. we, we notice it right here too. And, um, you know, Chris, you obviously use it more for, um, your business real estate side, yes. but man, would we love it for the, the nature, you know, right. uh, videography side or, or photo side mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and I, I totally get, um, the reason why, but, um, man, you could do so much with that to help bring awareness for a lot of things too, you know, like, could you get a permit, uh, Josh, for a special project like that to use a drone, say, um, you know, like, um, you're in a specific, I'm just throwing out a place out here, like Churchill, you know, for polar bears, uh, you may be able to fly one legally there. You may not, but, uh, a spot where let's say you aren't, are, are you able to, to get certain permits, that would allow you for conservation projects or documentaries or do you know anything about that or 
I haven't heard <clears throat> specifically. I, I do know that you can apply, uh, say, in a national park, for example, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to to get a permit to fly a drone. I've also heard this quite an onerous process. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not something I've attempted, and I'm not uh, aware of anyone else who has. Oh yeah, uh, but I yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to know that as well. You know, we there's there's two aspects to this. I mean, there's there's wanting to share uh, information to help really raise awareness of it, you know, conservation issues. So we come at it from that approach, but we also approach it from the uh, ethical wildlife uh, photography standpoint as well. So mm-hmm. when we're considering, you know, whether it be it, be it a bear or whatever the case may be, you know, we, we try to minimize our impact as much as possible. So it's only something we would do if we could have some level of assurance that we're not going to negatively impact this animal, disturb them, you know, uh, disrupt their natural behaviors. Yeah. And and that's a really good point. And, you know, to be able to get uh, a permit to do that in a park and even like, how do I say like uh, bring awareness and almost like kind of prove that, you know, you can do this and be ethical about it. Cause I know with our photography, um, you know, Chris and I are, are shooting more behind the scenes so we could show, you know, we've got some, some of these, I call them trophy shots, you know, head and shoulders, close ups, you know, that kind of stuff. And then I talk about the environmental images that, that tell the story. Right. But a lot of people think that, you know, with these trophy shots, you know, they're just outside our minimum focusing distance of our lenses. Right. <laughs> like they're 10 feet away. They're 15 feet at the end of that 500. And it was like, we're trying to explain to them that if you actually saw uh, the footage, I mean, we were even talking about this, uh, this, this past couple of weeks. Um, we don't, you know, the, the, I wouldn't say the legal, but yeah, the, the preferred distance for uh, ungulates is 30 meters. Well, I don't want to shoot anything 30 meters. Like I, I would be getting a headshot every time. Like we're 50, we're 80, we're a hundred meters. Like, you know, we're, we're away uh, for two reasons uh, for ethical photography, but at the same time to tell more of a story and stuff. So uh, I think a lot of times people don't understand the equipment we use to get the images to, um, you know, that, that shows, you know, close ups and detail and cause we want to show them the animal, right. You know, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, um, that's why we're doing a little bit more behind the scenes that we're going to be sh- showing more like, Hey, look at, okay, here's Chris. He, he's, he's taking uh, photos of this elk. And then I've done this before with polar bears and I've kind of panned to show like how far this elk actually is away. And then right. you snap to the, the actual end photo. So then people yeah. are starting to realize like, Oh wow. Cause I had a, a shot of a, a sow and, and two cubs, polar bear walking across across the tundra, and people were like, "Oh, how close were you?" Well, it was a, a 500 mil lens uh, shot on a crop sensor Canon body, which is another 1.6, with a teleconverter, which was 1.4. Okay, so you're shooting 1120. Then the image was cropped, you know. But at the same time, I had somebody. <laughs> yeah. I had, at the same time, I had somebody <laughs> taking a video. Okay, so you could see the video. And you could hardly see the sow and the cubs, but this is part of one of my presentations. This is what we're seeing. This is how far they are. We're not impeding mm-hmm. their progress. We're not disturbing them. We're not, you know, this. And then, boom, look at the final image. And they're like, holy crap, we had no idea. We yeah. thought you pulled yeah. up beside the vehicle and you're you're flying out taking photos, right? So long story short, I guess, it's um, 
I think even with the drone stuff, it would be an important message to, um, you know, maybe do, uh, do some behind the scenes, maybe show some, some photos like that, um, that to help the public realize that, um, you know, um, there are, um, not safer ways, well, safer ways, but ethical ways to, to capture the, those images too. Yeah. I mean, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I haven't seen a lot of uh, drone wildlife photography, probably mostly around the ocean. You know, I've seen images. Yes. I'm, in fact, actually, one of the uh, members in the collective, Mark Williams, uh, just had an image of his place in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year contest uh, hosted by the Natural History Museum. Mm -hmm. Uh, he got uh, two of his images actually were highly commended. And one of them is of, uh, I think it's beluga whales uh, in the ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a phenomenal image. Oh, I and again, I've seen take, that, actually. I just take, saw that yesterday yep. or this morning. Yeah. Yep, yeah. 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 So that's, that's, that's one of our members. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 For sure. Oh, that's great. Birdie, Birdie Gregory got the, um, the shot of the, the hunting orcas with the seal on top of the, the, the ice there. And, um, Trying to remember the other gentleman's name. Yeah, I mean the imagery is just phenomenal, but we'll have to yeah, check sure. that out. But again, um, there's a few people I follow on um, on Instagram. Um, maybe we can flash their names up here because I uh, I don't want to say their names incorrectly. Uh, they're primarily um, you know kind of the Arctic type photographers. You know they live and work up there, and some of the drone footage I see of the polar bears, polar bears hunting polar bears feeding on on a kill uh them swimming um just phenomenal and you can yeah. tell from the footage that the polar bears aren't even aware you know that that yeah. that drone's anywhere near close you know with the technology today and the lenses and i mean i'm not uh, a drone uh, person by any means but um years ago i i seen some of these um drones like um i think it was bbc that was there with actual dslrs you know, uh, pointed down to the ground and I don't know, there's 20 propellers or something <laughs> like it, it was a crazy, crazy drone. But, you know, with that type of equipment, you could be an ethical distance away and actually zoom in. Right. Yeah. And get that kind of footage without them probably even hearing the props or, or being exactly. disturbed from that. Right. So. The only problem is the bigger the drone, the, the louder it is, unfortunately. And, and in Canada, oh, we're is it? Yeah. To, yeah, then Canada, we're only allowed to fly uh, no higher than 400 feet. Um, unless yeah. we have a special, uh, uh, certificate of, you know, in order to, to get the permit to do that. And, and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know if you've, if you noticed, noticed Josh, when you're flying the drone, but you know, depending on how you go, I can kind of still hear the drone, you know, even it's pretty darn high up in the air, but you can surprise really? it at times, yeah. surprisingly. And I yeah. have a, I don't know what drone you have, but I have a DJI Air 2S. It's not, yeah. it's not a mini, so it's a little bigger, but you can still hear it at, at times for sure. And, Serious, uh, eh? Um, oh, yeah. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's not super noisy to us when it's that high in the air, but you know, sure. if there's other wildlife or whatever that can hear better than we can, then maybe, you know, maybe it is disturbing them, but. Yeah, I've actually yeah. been using mine to do a lot more sort of landscape stuff. Again, related to conservation, um, mm -hmm. I flew mine. Are, are you familiar with the whole, uh, the Frayer Creek area with the old growth on uh, Vancouver Island? I think You might've so. heard about the protest, uh, in 2021. I think I've heard of that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So essentially it's, it's a stand of, it's a valley, the Frayer Creek Valley uh, is just outside of Port Renfrew on Vancouver Island. It's about an hour and a half from where I live. It's, um, 
logging company, Teal Jones, uh, was approaching it. And some people discovered this was happening. They set up a protest. It lasted for, I think, over a year. Um, but I spent quite a bit of time out there photographing at the time, uh, capturing images, both of the forest and the protests and, and things like that. Uh, but I've gone back since and I've, I've uh, been trying to fly my drone up the Ferry Creek Valley, uh, certainly, uh, you know, it, to really to give a sense of just what an extraordinary place this is, all right. this beautiful old growth forest and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, pr problem is, it's, yeah, I, I can lose range, I can lose signal almost. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little yeah. nervous about flying it very far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And that's what I find too. Like, I mean, it's one thing to, to potentially capture wildlife, but the landscapes and, and, you know, the, the land formations from the sky, um, you know, is just amazing. And some of the shots, especially around the ocean that I've seen, yeah. um, there's some beautiful images that you can crap, you can capture from the air that you just don't realize that you can see that on the ground at all. Right. So, yeah. so the landscapes I enjoy for sure, even, even here in Calgary, I mean, some of the rivers and all that, when I'm doing, when I'm doing real estate, uh, you know, drone work, you look over and go, oh, there's a pretty cool shot of the river. So while I'm up there, I'm just going to capture that shot because this looks <laughs> yeah. pretty cool as well, right? So I'm always yeah. thinking of uh, my own shots when I'm up in the air for sure. But yeah. One of the, um, th there are a number of, people have taken a number of different drone shots of the herring spawn around Vancouver Island. Okay. And okay. Uh, that's, it, and actually, it probably gives you the the best sort of context of of what it looks like. You know, you, you've got to see it from the air to see the color. Uh, so, I mean, we're talking about millions of, of herring that you know congregate around, say, Hornby Island or or the east coast of Vancouver yeah, Island. Sure. And when they spawn, it turns the the ocean this milky, um, you know, turquoise uh, color, and it's oh, it's wow. incredible. Wow. Yeah. Now, the conservation story there is that this is the last viable uh, herring fishery on the coast of BC. There used to be five. Four of them were fished to the point that the uh, populations collapsed. And there's now one single, you know, oh, population kidding? that's still being actively uh, commercially fished. Wow. Wow. Yeah. One of five left. Yeah. Holy jeez. That's crazy. Yeah. That's it. Now, is that something that... Um, you can work towards reestablishing again, or is it more of conserving what we have now? I, you know, I, th I think it, it, it's, well, the other four are no longer being fished. I don't know what the state of them is currently, but the, oh, you know, you. ideally, yeah. you know, you, you would hope that, uh, they would be allowed to recover kind of like the cod on the East coast of uh, Canada there, you know, Naturally, give them a chance to recover, yeah. build up their numbers again. I, I mean, uh, certainly the first nations on the coast have been sustainably, sustainably harvesting, uh, the row from herring for years. And they use a technique, uh, where they put boughs of, you know, evergreen trees, just, uh, coniferous trees into the water mm -hmm. and the, the herring will actually lay their eggs right on these boughs and then they pull them out and, and they have all of these, uh, all oh, this row how clever. They, they can, wow. absolutely. So yeah. no harm to the fish. Exactly. They're, they're not you having know. to harvest the fish to get the row. Exactly. Interesting. But unfortunately, well, the you know, the road that they do harvest, or sorry, the herring that they harvest, you know, they're pr primarily harvested for the row, uh, for sushi, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the rest of the herring, most of it is ground up and used for fertilizer and pet food. Mm -hmm. mm, I, uh, see. I see. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's that was actually pretty cool. I, I didn't know about that, the collection mm. of row that way. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cool. 
So is there anything else, um, Josh? Like, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot, a lot to unpack there on your, on your website and stuff, but um, um, it sounds like a really cool kind of a, a major campaign being launched. Um, what can people do? You know, um, <clears throat> is there something that they can, you know, uh, you've mentioned, you know, volunteer and images and uh, like that sort of thing, but what can the, the, the general public do um, if they wanted to get involved? Certainly, you know, so going back to what we talked about earlier, I, I, I guess there's a few things. Um, we'll be, throughout the course of the month, we'll be asking people to submit their own images, share their own stories, those sorts of things. So, you know, we're looking to make that connection uh, with people. Sure. And, and really so that everyone has an opportunity to, to speak to the issues, to, to share their stories. Um, uh, you know, the main goal again is to become, become informed, read, read the materials, uh, learn mm -hmm. about the, the, the issues, watch the videos, watch the, you know, look at the photos, um, and really become informed. And, and if it speaks to you, if you, if you want to become more engaged, um, you know, as I said, reach out to these different organizations, our partners, uh, and, and see what kind of opportunities lie. Because, you know, again, they're the experts. We're, we're the visual storytellers, but they're the, the actual that's right. experts. Fair you enough. Know? Oh, that's, and, that's a great, great way of portraying that visual storytellers. Essentially, that's, that's what your, your photographers and videographers are, you know, so. Exactly. Okay, so um, Josh, um, I know we we got uh, right at the beginning. We were kind of asked uh, about you a little bit. We were starting to talk about you a little bit, and then we totally got sidetracked with, uh, of course, this important project you have, the, the campaign that you're being launched. So um, we just kind of want to like revert back a little bit <laughs> to uh, to you, um, and just you know, kind of get back on track a little bit with, um, um, you know, who you are and kind of the fun stuff that, uh, Chris and I, mm -hmm. you know, ask, um, um, the people that, that we interview. So of course, uh, the biggest one is whether you're a Canon guy, a Nikon guy, um, you know, uh, the, <laughs> <Where> do you shoot <laughs> the, the gear stuff. So what do you shoot? There, there is Josh? a right answer here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So to be honest, I, I tried to do some research, uh, before I bought my first camera, sure. you know, I asked around, I actually reached out to, uh, a guy by the name of Ian McAllister. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, you know, he actually steered me towards Sony, but I ended up going oh, yeah. with Canon. Uh, oh, right Yay. welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. <you betcha. laughs> we can continue the interview now. <laughs> we don't have to cut it short. Nikon. Oh, cut. Okay. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> That's awesome. So what did he get you into? Yeah. Like what, what, uh, what kind of, uh, where did he steer you? Well, if that was five, six well, years ago, it's probably still uh, DSLR then. Yeah. He, well, yeah, he was pointing me towards, um, you know, as I say, towards Sony and I, and I think they had their mirrorless out at the time. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. But I ended up picking up a, a 5D Mark IV. So that was my first. Oh, nice. nice. And I got yeah. it with the 24 to 105. And mm -hmm. then, you know, be because of my sort of my interest in, in photographing wildlife, you know, I very quickly realized, all right, this lens isn't going to cut it. So yeah. shortly thereafter, I picked up the one to 400 lens. Um, yeah. You know, I picked it's up a, a number. Yeah. It's, it really is a great one. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I expanded, I, I wasn't entirely sure which direction I wanted to go. So I got a few, mm -hmm. some landscape, you know, I've got the 16 to 35, I've got the yep. 50 mm -hmm. mil prime, 
you know, different things like that. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's interesting because when you come at it from a conservation perspective, when you're when you're looking at you in order to tell the whole story, you really should be trying to learn all the different genres of photography mm-hmm. uh, so that you can accurately depict something. You know, if, if all you ever show is a photo of a wild of wildlife, people don't necessarily always connect uh, with, with that image, you know, whereas mm-hmm, if you sure. can tell a bigger story, you know, so if I go to a rally or I go to a protest, you know, if I photograph these sorts of things, it's part of the bigger story. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to, broaden my skills in, in that respect. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to work with a portrait photographer just to gain those skills. Mm-hmm. It's, that's an area that I'm actually probably least comfortable with. I'm yeah. much more comfortable sitting with a bear and photographing than I am sure. you know, trying to take yeah. photos of a stranger. Sometimes that's way much more preferred as well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> depending on the individual. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One thing I kind of want to emphasize, though, too, and I do this in talks and workshops, is that every lens is a wildlife lens and every lens is a landscape lens because mm-hmm. you can tell a story with with both in, in both different um, aspects of, of nature photography. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've got um, photographers, you know, that are coming up and want to shoot wildlife and they look at a prime Canon 500 and they're like, oh, my God. I'm like, no, no, like you know, whatever you've got is going to work, you know? And um, that's why that huge shift 15 years or so ago to more of the environmental images where you can use a 24 to 70 or 24 to 105 to tell the story versus a five or six or an 800 mil, you know, tight um, trophy shot, right? You know, so um, <clears throat> that's why I, I like that one to four. Chris, Chris will agree to, we use that oh, yeah. lens for video quite a bit too quite a bit it's such a sweet mid-range lens tack sharp um yeah that's that that was uh that's a really uh great choice for um for the camera bag for sure so what camera are you using now are you still using the 5d mark IV or no i've got i'm up to three now so i i ended up picking up the 5ds uh i use Mm -hmm. that primarily for landscape Mm -hmm. and a year and a half ago i picked up the r3 Um, and I've got the, I, I do have the 600 mil, you know, F4 uh, lens as well there. Uh, And to be honest, I'm actually pushing myself to, to put it down and go back to the one to 400 more Mm. because, you know, as you, as you spoke about earlier, the idea of, um, you know, telling a bigger story, trying to capture more, uh, in an image rather than just that trophy shot, like you're you're talking about. I mean, it's. I understand the appeal. I, I was sucked into it and I'm having to push myself. It, mm-hmm. you know, my natural tendency sure. is still to, to grab the 600 because I love the detail uh, that it can pick up. But at the same time, um, it, really my goal is the story. So And the yeah, background is just fantastic. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love like with those, <laughs> I shoot a 500 F4 and I mean like the backgrounds are just, uh, yeah, that. Well, I rented a 4028 for the elk run, yeah. and wow, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's and don't get me lens, wrong, that's for sure. So, so. so, all this talk about environmental and this, that, and everything else, don't get me wrong, the 500 <laughs> still with me, but the one to four or the 24 to 70 is on another camera body, so yeah, I'm switching back and forth quite a bit. Like, uh, yeah. this past fall, I had the cotton carrier on, and so I had my, my 500. And then I had my one to four on another camera body attached to me. So I had that range of one to 500, you know, 
or I'd change yeah. the one to four and put a 24 to 70. So yeah. um, very conscious of doing the environmental stuff along with the, the trophy stuff. Uh, I mean, it's all very important. Yeah, yeah, it's all very important. But I find with publications and, and like you said, like conservation, all this kind of stuff, the more your image tells a story, um, uh, you know, the more valuable it is. I'm not talking mm-hmm. monetary. I'm talking, you know, as far as um, getting the point across. Right. So. Um, so, there, yeah, I've seen that that shift 15, 20 years now, like a sure. huge shift to that. Because, you know, growing up, outdoor photography magazine and all these all these other ones, it was always like that big you know ram or that bull elk on the front cover of all and these are like 20 some years ago right and those are those trophy shots and like these are the ones you know these epic shots and you can see over the years the decades how it's it's transforming i mean you'll still see them on like nat geo or can geo or whatever um some of those trophy style shots but you can see it moving away to a lot of the the environmental stuff too right so uh, because of that in, in the 600 is the 600 your go-to still, or is it more the one to four? It's, it is at the moment, but it, like I say, I'm picking up the one to four more often. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I did actually shoot some video with that. I've been, that's something I'm trying to transition to as well as shooting more video, uh, again, for the storytelling so aspect of it. Um, it's, you know, the, the photo editing learning curve is, is a steep one as anyone who's done it knows, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm slowly picking away at that. And that's what I was going to ask you as well, because I mean, I found, I mean, I have a video background, I've been video for 30 years and, but I, you know, I, I still have that battle with, do I take the photo to take the video? Um, so I used yeah. to carry two cameras and two bodies and tripod and all this. And so now like this past year, I just been focusing on today, I'm shooting video tomorrow, I'm shooting photos. And, and I, I found that the more video I capture really helps tell the story and she yeah. sees the behavior mm-hmm. and you can actually, mm-hmm. you know, witness the action that's, you know, you can in the photo as well, but it doesn't always tell the story that the video actually captures. Um, so I was yeah. going to ask you how much, how much video do you actually shoot these days? Have you been, you've been shooting a little bit more from what, from what you're saying? Yeah, I make a point. So pretty much I'm still doing what you, what you talked about, you know, you used to do trying to switch back and forth. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, you know, I, I typically carry a couple lenses with me. I haven't been carrying a couple bodies, but that's something I think I need to move to. Sure. You know, that's my inexperience really. Um, but, but yeah, I, I definitely am trying to do much more video. Um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, different organizations that we've, we've spoken with in the past, they're often asking for video, uh, to a surprising degree. And, um, you know, I, I, I definitely see the value. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we've been putting together our, our campaign stuff, uh, there's there've been so many times we've we've needed some video content to supplement. You know, the images are, are fantastic. You know, a beautiful still can do an amazing job telling the story, but sometimes sure. the video really just it, I, I I find it really captivating. I get drawn into video mm-hmm. quite easily. Oh uh, sure, yeah. You know, so yeah. It's it's something that I I want to be able to share. There's actually a photographer on the island, uh, a guy named Michael Berge. Uh, I, I actually had a chance to finally meet him on the weekend and go shoot with him. Uh, he shot a video on, on the island. I'm not going to say where, but um, with some some coastal wolves and black bears and whatnot. It was absolutely outstanding. And I, to be honest, I was inspired by it. And I told him so. Uh, you know, so it it, it really I thought. I want to do that. I want to start shooting that kind of stuff. 
Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's great. So is that, um, your favorite subject to photograph is bears, wolves? Like if you had to choose one or is it more, or if you had to choose a category, is it like predators or is it, you know, um, it's a tough one. I, I know yeah. it's a tough question, but I'm just kind of curious more than anything. I think it probably has more to do with accessibility than anything. You know, I, I don't have the time and budget to really do big trips. I wish I could. Um, mm-hmm. I would probably photograph, you know, more wolves and, and, mm-hmm. and explore lots of different things that I, you know, I haven't really sure. had an opportunity to. Yeah. Um, fortunately on the Island, you know, in the fall right now, uh, there are a lot of black bears out at active, mm-hmm. you know, the, the salmon are running in the rivers at different stages, uh, mm-hmm. different locations on the Island, but, uh, mm-hmm. lots of black bears. So I probably spend more time photographing black bears than anything else. Oh, nice. Um, okay. Black okay. bears in the fall and, and owls in the spring, mostly. Nice. Um, Oh. When I can get out on the water, you know, there, we have some great locations where I can photograph. I, I have a passion for pinnipeds, you know, the, the sea lions. Mm-hmm. Um, they're often maligned by people mistakenly in this area, believing that they're, you know, responsible for the decline of salmon. Um, it's, it's not true. Uh, there are a myriad of reasons why salmon are declining uh, you know, on the coast of BC, mm-hmm. all of which are related to human activities. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that what has happened anecdotally is that um, the salmon population were declining at the same time that uh, the pinniped population was recovering. So pinnipeds were nearly wiped off the, the coast of oh. BC, you know, seals mm-hmm. and sea lions. Okay, yeah. Um, when, when they stopped actively hunting them and, and their numbers increased, mm-hmm. um, and like I say, you know, it just happened to coincide with this decline in, in salmon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of the sports and, and commercial fishermen around here, well, ah, you know, we've got we've to get rid of these, these seals and sea lions. I'm like, hold on a second. Like, you need a little historical context because there yeah, was a time bet. when the coast was full of seals and sea lions and fish, mm-hmm. you know, and they existed that way for ages so you you know yeah i mean don't get me wrong i i photographed them eating salmon they do eat them there's no question but they're not the reason for sure yeah so you know in terms of subjects yeah they i there's an area uh, there's a lighthouse in in a set of islands just south of victoria called the race rocks and i love going out to photograph um the pinnabids out there they're very charismatic they're they're kind of comical So, you know, in this area, we've got stellar and California sea lions. We've got Pacific uh, Harbor seals. We've got Northern elephant seals. Um, so, I mean, you could, oh, wow. you could see those at different times of year. Mm. Yeah. The only wow. thing I haven't seen are the, uh, are the fur seals, but they're not really around here. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. And owls, are you talking, uh, like great grays or what, what are you, are uh, short eared? No. What, what's out that way? The vast majority are barred and and uh, great horned owls. Uh, oh, great there horned, are okay. sh- there are a small number short eared short mm-hmm. eared uh, on the islands. Um, they're more in the lower mainland area, mm-hmm. and usually around like I think it's January or something like that. Um, I've gone out looking for pygmy owls. They're nice. really hard to find. I've only ever seen once. Yeah, uh, the northern pygmies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we get, we don't really get great gray on the Island. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, unfortunately, cause I'd love to see them, mm-hmm. but, um, I've seen solid owls, but only because I, uh, I went to a bird banding station and they were calling them and they would catch them in a net and then ban them. So I, I photographed them doing oh, their work. But, how cool uh, is that? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome yeah. to watch that, that kind of those, those projects in the work, uh, in the works. Yeah. Uh, there's something similar like that here, just in High River for the the hummingbirds. 
And I didn't oh, yeah. actually get get the the witness them trapping the hummingbirds, but um, they actually showed us the um, the bands. And they're so, uh, <laughs> they're so oh my goodness! Like yeah, I, you, could, you could hardly see them with with your eye. And yeah, they put these yeah. little bands on these little legs, and uh, yeah. they're numbered and everything else. So it was really cool to to see it, but. And the process of just like sitting there basically waiting for the, the hummingbird to come to the feeder and then dropping the net, you know, and then getting them inside the net and stuff. It, it was cool. Um, but um, yeah, anytime you get to see some sort of a, a conservation effort like that, you know, uh, yeah. like I said, even like banding birds is, is really cool to see. And something sure. uh, cool to to, um, uh, to um, photograph, like, you know, document, right? So Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of organizations doing great work and it's neat to need to see it and need to share it, you know, so people are more aware. Yeah. Yeah, oh, for absolutely. sure. Yeah, for sure. So like I said, I mean, your photography, uh, you know, it, it's at that level and it's only like five, six years. So, uh, like really impressed with, with your imagery. Like did, how did you accelerate that? Like, was it YouTube videos, people you knew, um, or was it, um, do you have the same personality as we do and you just kind of dive headfirst into anything new you want to learn and uh you know uh, you ex- you accelerate that way combination of of all of the above i guess yeah um, i did you know i did i i i probably i watched or I paid for some online courses yep. you know i paid for one just to understand my camera you know uh, mm-hmm. Uh, I have watched, you know, I paid for some courses to try and learn different genres, to try and learn photo sure. editing, things mm-hmm. like that. And I haven't paid anything for a while. Now I, now I mostly watch, you know, uh, YouTube videos and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. To be honest, you know, I definitely get out and shoot and, and experiment and try to learn that way. But uh, I've always wished I had some kind of mentor uh, to, to help sort of guide me. I learn really well that way, you know, having that opportunity to ask questions and really yep. sort of, uh, I, I, yeah, I find that you can cut through a lot of stuff and get right to, uh, right to a topic. It's something I wish that, uh, was available, but yeah, I haven't really, uh, ever, uh, put that in place. Yeah. Well, you're doing um, a hell, you're doing a heck of a job, man. I, yeah, I look at your yeah. landscapes <laughs> and it's like some of the ocean stuff, like, wow, it's just, it's unbelievable. So great job. So that's pretty cool. Thank you. Do you use filters? Yeah, definitely. Um, a polarizer, probably more than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done some stuff with ND, but uh, you know, when I'm shooting in in old growth, I I learned that a polarizer is really valuable. Oftentimes, you know, these forests are, are moist or they're wet. For sure. And the spring, yeah. I find, is typically the best time to shoot. You know, it's just kind of after winter when everything's green and lush, and, and mm-hmm. you know, the moss sure. is vibrant and. Um, so, you know, in order to cut the glare off uh, some of those wet leaves and things like that, yeah, polarizer is really helpful. Oh, yeah, great. you bet. That's just kind of one of those filters or the only filter that you can't uh, really um, um, replicate in post. Yeah. Post, you know, yeah. if yeah. the detail's yeah. not there, it's just not there. You know, you, yeah, you can't sure. magically remove glare and have detail underneath that glare in Photoshop, right? So. So, um, yeah, Chris and I advocate for that quite a bit. If you're only going to oh, have yeah. one filter in the bag it's polarizer, you know, yeah. you can oh, get sure, away yeah. with everything else uh, without having everything else. Right. Um, on the photo side so, anyway. So on the, yeah, on the video on the side, I side, use I ND filters all the time for, you for do the video it. world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Variable ND filters on the video side, 
to create the cinematic quality that you're looking for. Um, you definitely need that to, to go that next, the next level for sure. So I'd love to chat more with you about that sometime. I'm, I'm very interested. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you clearly have uh, an extensive knowledge and experience in, in video uh, shooting. So yeah, I very much. Oh yeah, no, for sure. That was actually my last two presentations were on nature video and that's kind of the, the main thing is, is, you know, we always talk about uh, when you're first learning photography, you know, how to get off of auto. You need to learn ISO and shutter speed. And the same thing, everybody just hits the, as Joe likes to say, the little red button on his camera and just <laughs> and starts recording video. But there's, yep. you know, there's settings on the video side too that will just help improve that video quality that you're getting. And, and yeah, yeah, Andy filters mm-hmm. play a key role in that for sure. So. I still struggle with uh, focus. You know, that's one of the things that I that I find challenging about uh, shooting video. When you've got a moving subject, you know, trying to keep that focus on it. And uh, sure, yep, yeah. Well, the problem the problem on the video side is, um, you know, the, the the camera's definitely doing a lot of hunting and pecking and and you know, trying to zoom in and out. And what I found, um, as long as they're on the same plane, I just switch to manual focus. And yeah, and, uh, and definitely is key to to. You know, not the video, the zooming in and out that, that the focusing in and out that it's doing is is kind of annoying to to see. So I try to avoid that at all costs. So yeah, I've, I have shot some manual. Um, yeah. I find black bears are really challenging. You know, because they're they're so dark and their eyes are dark. You oh, know, sure. Yeah, camera has a hell of a time detecting that. The cool part about the new cameras these days, I'm not sure if yours has it as well. I'm assuming the R3 would for sure, 100% <laughs> it would because the R5 does and the R6 Mark II Joe's using as well does as well. Mm-hmm. But peak focusing, if you, if, you, if you don't know what that is, look yes. that up. Yeah. yeah, peak focusing is great. I use that all the time on the manual side. And, you know, it just yeah. I have it set to a red hue. So it just you can see exactly what is highlighted and you know it's in focus or not. And yeah, um, that definitely plays a key role. My I also use a monitor. So my eyes are getting, you know, worse as I get older. So a bigger monitor on the video side is definitely key for me. So that's a great idea. Yeah. 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 It's definitely, definitely needed on the video side for sure. And, and the vid in the monitor itself doesn't have to be all that expensive. Eh, Chris? It's just an extension no. of the, the viewfinder. So it's yep. something, I mean, I've got a really inexpensive one that, um, I mean, I haven't used it as much as I should, but um just for the manual focus part right just to, to mm, show okay. that the focus peaking across the, the screen you know yeah. it's just an hdmi cable in and out and that's it right so i shoot video in my regular life um daily and i use a monitor every <clears throat> single time i shoot you do so, eh? yeah i do yeah. Mm-hmm. but i i now i'm using the the animos ninja monitors which actually have a ssd hard drive in them so it actually records to that but you don't need oh, that wow. just just the monitor just to be able to mm-hmm. view things to be able to see that focus a little clearer it definitely helps mm-hmm. on the video side because you know you know we all have cameras that have animal eye detect on the photo side but on the video side they haven't really transferred that over um so yeah. you definitely it's a little harder to to mm-hmm. see focus and having that monitor definitely helps for sure no that absolutely makes sense yeah, video. It's 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 a real struggle. It's it's. I've posted that a few times. A friend, a friend of mine, Eric. Um, um, uh, I, I mention him all the time because I I told him I said the struggle is real. I said do I shoot video or do I shoot photo? And he, this yeah. was classic. He goes, you can't hang a video. It's like, oh, you're killing me, man. But you like, can you now. Know. You can. <laughs> well, that's what I told him. Get one of them digital frames, man. Okay, there you go. Yeah. There's, your, there's your video, right? Just have it streaming on the wall, right? But he makes for a sure. good point for, for those that are, you know, 
um, make a living or, or part of their living selling print sales and, and sure. you know stock imagery and all this kind of stuff, which is a hundred percent true. But at the same time, I mean, Chris, you can probably uh, attest to this. Um, video stock imagery is is really booming now too, right? Yeah, like I I uh, I don't have a ton of uh, videos up on stock footage, but I mean, um, definitely um, it's stock photos are coming down and stock videos are going up and, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's definitely desired, especially COVID changed that a ton. Um, there's a lot of people mm-hmm. that haven't been able to travel, you know, in those three years or whatever, and being able to pick up footage from online and use them in some storytelling or whatever mm-hmm. they're looking for. Um, even on the conservation side, you know, there's lots of, of good video that could be up there that people can, you know, tap into to use, uh, to, to make, you know, to make people aware. Right. So I think it's definitely yeah. going in the right direction mm-hmm. for sure for numerous different things. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we've, we've had organizations specifically ask us uh, for video. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a challenge, you know, our overall, our photographers are, are probably like me taking more and more videos. Mm-hmm. Um, some sure. are, you know, dedicated videographers, so they've got a ton of content. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's, it's, it's subjects that we, it's, it's super challenging. So like we were asked about getting uh, content about, uh, of, of the Southern resident uh, orcas. Problem is you're, there's, you're not allowed to approach them anymore. You're not allowed to, you know, I think you've got, there's a 400 meter sort of, uh, you've got to stay back. And uh, so, yeah, even getting that content now is virtually impossible. Mm. You know, unless you're on a research vessel or something like that, you, you Mm -hmm. can't get even close to them. So the, the whale tours and all that that they used to do, they, they, they don't do that as much anymore? They can't pursue, they can't, uh, you know, approach Southern residents at all, gotcha. even okay. them. Um, the, the transient, uh, so the marine mammal eating uh, version of, of orca, yeah, there's, they can get, I think, I want to say it's up to 200 meters away from them or something like that. Okay. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in visually they're very, very similar, but sure. if, if an organization wanted specifically, you know, Southern resin, you'd, you'd almost have to take it from land. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. So uh, it, it is getting very regulated out there, but, um, I totally understand why, you know, um, yeah. a lot of photographers are, um, you know, that have been doing this 40 years, 30 years, um, you know, they, they've seen it from the, from the beginning as far as their career goes and, and to what it is now. And, um, it's getting tougher, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as far as, um, what they're accustomed to, you know, as far as regulations, but it, it's, it's all really there just to protect the wildlife. So it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, it's, it's often case that a few bad apples ruin it for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I, Agreed. I've seen that many times, you know, when I've been out shooting, whether it's uh, the general public or whether it's photographers mm-hmm. doing things that, you know, really disrupt wildlife. And, you know, you can try having the conversation with uh, people. Some people are receptive, a lot aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we try to do as an organization is really just just inform, you know, try to give, mm-hmm. share best practices, try to encourage people to do the right thing. Um, yeah, you know, right. we, we stay away from the naming and shaming, you know, we don't want to get into that, but, sure. um, yeah. but you know, we want to try and create a culture of respect around wildlife. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, even, even Very the, true. I think the, I mean, Joe, Joe and I see it all the time. I'm sure you do too, as uh, Josh as well, but like the tourism, um, 
people coming into different communities and in the national parks and all that and they don't understand and they just think it's a zoo and they want to get out there and and I, I think that the you know jasper and banff and all those you know their social media they're trying to post more of that conservation uh, scenarios on there so to make people aware but um, mm-hmm. I think we see a lot of tourism that just don't understand and trying to get make them aware before they come over for a visit would be would be ideal for sure. So, Absolutely. I saw it this weekend. You know, I was yeah. in the area photographing black bears and you know, people are approaching as close as they can and they're trying to get the selfie, you know, to get the camera <sighs> mm-hmm. up. And it's frustrating. You know, it is. Yeah. Because unfortunately, and actually I heard uh, someone told me that the day before somebody was hand feeding a black bear pizza. Oh my God. You know, and, and oftentimes those are the bears that end up dead. You know, yep. that, that mm-hmm. fool will go home. And, and mm-hmm. tell a story and you know think that he's done something really cool. That bear will be dead, you know. Exactly. It's, yeah, like they yeah. say, a, a fed sense. bear is a dead bear, right? Like exactly. It's, it's just it's mm-hmm. just one of those things. But even a couple of weeks ago, you know, you'll see Chris and I will have like a, you know we we'll have our boots on and we'll have uh, say Nipa we'll have our bear spray bangers we have our our you know we're we're full on geared up and stuff and we're out there and we're photographing elk that are across the field and. And somebody, and it may be closer to a road or something. And all of a sudden you see a tour bus, they stop, they see you, they come running out there and, and nothing against anybody, but, and, and I would say most of them are just are not aware, but they'll yeah. come running out to us and, excuse me, shorts most of them and flip flops. Most of them with their phones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And that's it. And so underdressed excuse me, we're, there's reasons why we're dressed the, the way we are in certain situations and coming running out there in shorts and stuff and getting in front of us to take photos and, and we're, you know, you, you try and be, you know, be kind and explain, or I don't know how many times we've seen conservation officers like come out, try to explain to them, like, you know, mm-hmm. Hey, this is the, and, and like, not and uh, they did an excellent job. Like you know, they had mm-hmm. and you know they explained to them the right way and the wrong way, and then you know that they came walking back, and um, it was really great to see too because um, um, they actually left the, the photographers uh, do their thing because we're all mm-hmm. being respect respectful. We're at a, a safe distance. And we well, we, all, we on, carry on, range uh, finders, right? So we want to make yeah, sure we're staying that distance on purpose. You know, you know just stay away just everything, great. right? You know? So it was a really good experience this year with parks mm-hmm. and uh, conservation. Um, uh, they did an amazing job, just kind of. Uh, taking care of the tourists and and leaving um, the photographers that are doing it the right way um, mm-hmm. alone. Like, you, you know, they didn't have to, to, to get involved, right? But um, it, it's well, tough when you have people coming to the parks, especially paying a ton of money that have mm-hmm. come in like from overseas, you know, or, or something, and they want to come to a national park to see a bear or an elk or something. And uh, the excitement just overtakes them and they just start running with their phones and stuff. And I totally get it 100%, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah. maybe with, with what, you know, you're doing in your organization, like all this it might bring more awareness to everybody, you know? Um, and, and this is stuff that, you know, uh, Chris and I would, would, you know, love and going to share too on, on all our oh, social media yeah. and like Absolutely. all the videos, all, all the messages, you know, the tagging and the sharing and the stories and stuff like that. Um, cause you know, um, it, well, this is why we have you on here. It's, it, it's yeah. an important message uh, at the send, right. To share. So. Absolutely. 
So, so yeah. Josh, you were talking about when the when the uh, campaign launches every week, you're going to have a different topic. Basically, is it going to be on a certain day that people should be looking for, or it's spaced out about every three four days? I can't remember the okay, exact nice. schedule, but uh, yeah, it'll. I think I believe the uh, the road section will get the biggest uh, you know mm-hmm. amount of coverage. Just yeah. again, because we have the most content and it has the biggest impact. Um, sure. But certainly, you know, the other subjects um, will be given coverage as well. We haven't really talked as much about the uh, aviation side. I, you know, I had a chance to um, you know do do write the section for the publication document and do research on that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, aviation is probably the one. In, you know, transport industry that does the most to try and prevent uh, accidents uh, with wildlife. And I think oh, they, really? I believe they probably have the lowest number of, of incidents with wildlife. Mm-hmm. It, you know, they, it certainly happens, you know, primarily with birds. So uh, gulls, terns, geese, those sorts of mm-hmm. birds, uh, you know, will congregate in fields around airports. Uh, sure. So, you know, that that's an issue. Um but even, you know, animals like deer and, and moose and things like that, you know, when I was, um, I think this happened when I was a volunteer firefighter, uh, we, we had to go out to an airfield. Someone was getting evacuated, you know, out of this small Northern community. Uh, so, you know, an air ambulance, uh, plane came in and, and picked up the patient, but in order for them to land, we had to chase a moose off the runway, you know? So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, be, yeah. You know, in, in a, in an area like that, I, you know, I don't even know that there was a fence around uh, the airfield. So in, in, you know, remote communities like that, they've got to deal with things like uh, the big airports uh, have pretty well, you know, controlled and managed. Uh, sure, but that said, sure. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, We've we've definitely tried to do our best, you know, to cover all these different subjects as well as we can. Um, so throughout the month, we'll definitely be uh, you know, sharing all that information and, oh, and trying to engage people. Yeah, at least get the conversation going anyway, right? So that's, that's exactly. Great, so so um, uh, just to, to kind of wrap things up here, Josh, um, where where do you see like like the future of the organization uh, going? So after this campaign, I mean, we're going to take a little time to sort of. Uh, do an assessment of of you know the the success of it. Really try to you know get a sense of how well it's done, how many people are engaged, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. Um, but we're also going to take a little bit of a pause uh, because our, our hope is that uh, early next year we're going to look at incorporating it as a nonprofit organization. So up until this point, you know we've been doing this on you know, by the seat of our pants, like um, all we're using our own money to cover expenses, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we we've earned a little bit of income, uh, but mm-hmm. that's that's been burned up. So yeah, it's, you know, ideally once we can incorporate as a nonprofit, we'll be eligible for funding and opportunities and things like that. And it will help us help propel us, uh, you know, much further, be able to do more, um, as an organization. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that next chapter in, you know, as an organ, yeah, as an entity. Yeah. Uh, well, no, that's great. That's great, Josh. I mean, um, obviously, of course we're going to have you back on, on the podcast and, uh, and and just um, you know uh, maybe uh, follow follow your your organization on on that journey. See how things progress and, and mm-hmm. move along. And uh, and uh, like we talked um, behind the scenes too. Um, you know we're gonna have um, some of your uh, photographers uh, on the podcast too, um, sharing their stories and, and and what they're doing to help. Um, you know. Uh, with, with the with the collective um, with your organization, so uh, Chris and I yeah. are really looking forward to uh, to doing those interviews too. So 
yeah, anything we can help with, you let us know. So well, it's been great. Thank you so much. Well, this is a huge help. I mean, helping to, you know, to share the message about conservation photography as a genre and the work sure. that our organization and others are doing, uh, you know, to benefit um, natural environment and wildlife uh, really, really helps. So thank you for, for giving us this opportunity. Oh, you're, you're you. very welcome. Yeah, you're so, welcome. So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, we're going to wrap things up. Um, again, thanks so much, Josh, uh, for, for joining us uh, on the Nature Photo Guys podcast. And uh, we appreciate everybody again. Like we said, um, you know, thank you. Uh, you know, we booked uh, the milestone of uh, a thousand subscribers. So Chris and I are very excited about that. And, uh, you know, we've got a ton of stuff uh, uh, planned for the winter. And we always say that. But you know what? <laughs> we're going to do it. Uh, you know, uh, Life is busy, but we're obviously going to do our best. So um, again, uh, thanks for watching, guys, and we'll catch you uh, in the next video. Thanks for watching. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Nature Photo Guys podcast. If you have any questions, contact us at info at thenaturephotoguys.ca or message us on Facebook and Instagram at the Nature Photo Guys podcast. Visit YouTube and subscribe to our channel to watch all our latest videos. Or follow and listen to our latest podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website at thenaturephotoguys.ca. We'll catch you next time on the Nature Photo Guys podcast. Mm -hmm.